this morning is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44, can be found on page 1040 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to turn to that and follow along in the, refer to it during the sermon. All right, Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along, or as he went along, People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud, in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which came out 10 years ago, so I'm allowed to ruin it for you. <laughs> you remember my rule, if a TV show is three years old and a television sh- or a movie is five years old, I'm allowed to ruin it for you. It's your fault for not seeing it. I won't actually be ruining the movie, just one scene, but in the movie, The Case, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button... There is a scene where Benjamin Button, who is played by Brad Pitt, is sitting in a hospital waiting room. And he's waiting to go in and visit, I, I think it's his girlfriend or his wife, I'm not sure at that, what remember it all that well, but his honey, anyways. And he's waiting to go in and visit, Daisy is her name, who's in the hospital because she had come out of a theater where she had been rehearsing for a ballet 
She had walked out into the street, and a taxi cab struck her and crushed her leg, destroying her dreams of becoming a ballerina. And Benjamin is sitting in the waiting room of the hospital, and he's sort of recounting with sort of a a clairvoyant hindsight. Uh, He sort of recounts things there's no way he could possibly know, but he has sort of this clairvoyant hindsight, and he's sort of recounting all of the things, the events that took place in the minutes and hour leading up to that event, all of the things that took place, or at least a, a number of the infinite number of things that took place in the time leading up to that, and he's just, he realized that if only one thing had gone differently, then this would not have happened. So, for example, the, the woman who, was, who had hailed the taxi, who was in the taxi, there were a number of things that actually had held her up previously. So uh, she went out to go shopping. That was the reason she hailed the cab. And as she went out to go shopping, the phone had rung. And so she'd gone back in and had a conversation on the phone for five minutes and then come back and hailed the cab. And then once she got in the cab, as she was going along, she got held up again. Uh, This was like in the 50s in Paris where apparently cabs would wait for you. You'd get out, go do something, and they'd wait for you. I don't think they do that anymore. But anyway, uh, so she went to pick up a gift that was to be wrapped, and she got there, and it hadn't been wrapped. They had forgotten to wrap it, so she had to wait for the gift to be wrapped, and that held her up. And then she got back in the taxi, and as she was going along, a man ran out in the middle of the street, and the cab had to stop for a minute. And then the cab went a little bit farther, and, and a delivery truck backed out into the road, and, had to, and the cab had to slow down again. All of these things had hindered the path of this cab, and then on... On Daisy's end, certain things had happened. She was coming out of the, the theater where she had just had her ballet rehearsal and, and her friend whom she was waiting for, her friend went to tie her shoelace and broke her shoelace. And so they were tied up for a couple of minutes while she was figuring what to do with her shoelace. And so Benjamin is recounting all of these things with a clairvoyant hindsight. He couldn't have known all of these things. And he's realizing that if just one of these things had gone differently, then either Daisy would have already gone across the street or the cab would have been long gone. If just one of those things had gone differently, Daisy wouldn't be in the emergency room. Today we're continuing in our series called Surrender. It's a series in which we're going through the second half of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke just recounts the, the, the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus. And what we've seen is that the second half of the Gospel of Luke, there is this, this sort of pivotal verse in chapter 8 where it says, from this point on, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so then we are to read the subsequent chapters in light of the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to give his life. And so these chapters just show Jesus on his way to surrender himself. And so these chapters, as we read them, then become an invitation for us to surrender ourselves as he has, to surrender ourselves to him. And so throughout this series, we've been talking about what does it mean to surrender our lives to God. And the theme verse, which emerges in chapter 9, and we we have it written on the wall just so you won't forget it, and also so that I can read it right now to you all. Luke 9.24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
for me will save it. This idea that paradoxically surrendering our lives to God is what leads to life. Surrendering our life leads to life. And so we have the surrender tree in the back, which I'm encouraging you to avail yourselves of the surrender tree where you can take leaves and you can write on the leaves things that you feel like God is calling you to surrender to him. Maybe God's calling you to surrender your marriage to him. Maybe God is calling you to surrender your finances to him. Maybe God is calling you to surrender your time to him, on and on and on. And so I encourage you to avail yourself of that as we look at this idea of surrendering. There's also a family devotional uh, in, in the back, which I encourage you to take back, uh, that I'm kind of drafting as I do this. It's my first time doing a family devotional, and so it's a little rough. I'm going to be honest with you. I've done it with my kids, and a few times I've been like, well, that didn't work. But anyway, you can try it out and let me know what you think, uh, but that's for you to, to use during this series as well. But we're looking at these different ways in which we're called to surrender ourselves, and today we're looking at the issue of control that I think what we find in this passage, what emerges from this is an invitation to surrender control of our lives to God. And I would say that control is one of the linchpins, uh, that that, uh, one of the linchpins of this whole surrendering enterprise, that if you're unable to surrender control, you will be unable to surrender everything else. Control and pride. We look at pride last week, and we saw that if, if... If we're unable to surrender our pride, it's going to be very difficult to surrender the other things. You're not going to be able to surrender your marriage to God if you can't surrender your pride. You're not going to be able to surrender your time or your finances or whatever it is without surrendering your pride. And the same thing is true of control. If we're not able to surrender just this basic concept of control of our lives to God, then we won't be able to surrender anything else. And and that's what I think emerges from this passage is this idea of surrendering to God. And we see this because in this passage, Jesus is proclaimed as king. And so the crowds, we see them sort of symbolically surrendering themselves. Of course, you know, a week later they change their minds, but whatever. Uh, in, In this passage anyways, they're surrendering themselves to him as king. And of course, this has been the question as you read through the Gospel of Luke. Who is Jesus? That's, that's the question that the Gospel of Luke even sets out to address. Maybe you're here today, and you don't know what you think about Jesus. Uh, we want you to know we're really glad that you're here. We hope that this is a, a safe place for somebody to come and to investigate. Maybe they have no idea what they think about Jesus, and we want you to know that you're welcome here. That, in fact, that's what the Gospel of Luke was written for, was to, to help people come to to terms with, well, who is this Jesus? And so throughout the gospel, it's this question like, well, is he a, is he a really good teacher? Um, is, he, is he a prophet? You know, what is he? And then what finally emerges, though, of course, it's hinted at earlier on in the gospel, is Jesus is the Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one. And, of course, it, it points back in the Hebrew scriptures uh, to, to when the Israelite kings were anointed as, as king. King David was anointed as using the word Messiah. And, and so this was a way of, of saying this is the king of Israel. And of course, the Israelites at this point in time, in the time of Jesus, were hoping and waiting and longing for God to raise up a Messiah, that their kingdom had been destroyed hundreds of years before. And they were hoping and waiting and, that, that, and praying that God would raise up a king who would come and bring deliverance to them. And so that, that's what we see here 
is that everything in this passage points to this reality that Jesus is king. I mean, Jesus kind of acts like a king here. I mean, in the beginning, he tells the disciples to do something, and they do it. It's like he just says, do this, and they do it. Everything happens the way it should happen when a king says to do something. Uh, When he comes into Jerusalem, right, this whole journey, he's been making his way to Jerusalem. Now, instead of walking into Jerusalem, he rides in, right? He's got to ride in in style, right? I mean, you can't go into Jerusalem as king and just walk in. That would be really lame, right? So, so no, he arranges for this, uh, this colt, for him to ride on this colt. And, of course, this is all prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. We find Zechariah, the prophet, talking about how when the Messiah comes, he will come in riding on a donkey, riding on a colt. This is all very intentional. It's a way of saying, yes, Jesus is this great king. Jesus is this Messiah. Uh, then, of course, they, they spread their coats for him, uh, again, symbolizing sort of his highnessness or his royalness or however you want to put it. Uh, in the Gospel of John, they don't just spread coats. They spread palm branches, right? This is why today we celebrate Palm Sunday, the week before Easter as he's coming into Jerusalem, that they, according to the Gospel of John anyway, they lay down palm branches, again, uh, as a way of honoring Jesus. In verse 38, of course, uh, they, the crowds praise him and they acknowledge him as, as this king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Then the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're not so sure about this. They have their concerns. Jesus doesn't seem to be quite the Messiah that perhaps some of them uh, were expecting. And so they say, teacher, rebuke, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Right? I mean, Jesus has been sort of cryptic earlier on. Now he's just laying down the gauntlet. He's like, even all of creation, it would, would acknowledge me as, as king. So this whole passage is about Jesus as king. And the intention of this is for the readers then to surrender ourselves to Jesus as king in the same way that is, is done, at least symbolically, through how the crowds respond here. And it's this idea of surrendering control surrendering control of our lives to God. And I think here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. We do not like to give up control, do we? <laughs> we do not like to give up control. We, we like to be in control, right? I mean, we have our own plans, don't we? We've got our own plans for our future, our own plans for our career. We've got our own plans uh, for the weekend. We've got our own plans for the evening, right? And so we don't like the idea of having to you know, potentially give up control of any of this, really, to anybody. This is why marriage is often such a remarkable adjustment, right? I mean, when you're, when you're single, you come home, and the remote control... The remote control is sitting there on the coffee table for you to avail yourself of. But then when you get married and you come home from school or you come home from work and somebody else is holding the remote control. And so you have to begin to adjust to this idea of not having control. And then, of course, when you have kids, you can't even find the remote control. You're like, you're looking under the cow. You have no idea where it is. Or we don't like this idea of, of giving up control, surrendering our control. I, I, I think... Many people, 
The American dream, in fact, in some respects, is to work for yourself, right? I mean, we all want to be our own boss. That's the dream, man. I want to, I want to start my own company. I don't want to work for, you know, the, the monstrosity that I'm working for. I mean, we, we, that's sort of the dream. If I can work by myself, for myself, because we don't like this idea of having to work for others and, and then having to compromise and, and having to give up a measure of control. This idea of control, I think, really kind of freaks us out, doesn't it? Giving up control. You know, I was doing a little bit of research that it seems, and for some people this is already the case, but in the future it may be uh, very economical and much more efficient to no longer own your own car. You know this? I mean, with the the, uh, advent of Uber and all of these different services and whatnot, if you think about it, the reality is the way our our culture is set up is really not very efficient. We have everybody owns a car and you know, even if you have a long commute, you commute an hour a day, still at least like 22 hours of the day, your car is just parked somewhere. Everybody is like this. So we, I mean, the way cities have to be set up, there's all this space for cars to be parked. Everybody's got a garage that you got to, you know, you, you got to park your cars in the garage. And you know, imagine if you didn't have to park a car there, like you, you, you could turn it into a man cave. Just get rid of the cars and have a man cave, right? I mean, it's, it's really quite inefficient to have a car. So they're, they're kind of suggesting that down the road, it might be much more effective and efficient to kind of give up your car, just use Uber, those kinds of services. But that kind of freaks us out. Why? Because we want to be in control. We want to be in control. This idea of being in control, we even take it to really irrational places. You know, like, like you, you hardly meet anybody who says they're scared to drive a car. But how many people do you meet that are scared to fly in a plane? When statistically, like, it's not even close. It is so much safer. I mean, the most dangerous part of flying is driving yourself to the airport. But we don't, you know, our hypersensitivity about control and giving up control is so strong, it takes us to really irrational places. We do not like this idea of giving up control. And that's why I think this, this series that we're looking at is so hard, this idea of surrendering, because we don't like to give up control. But what I want to do is I'm going to give you four... Re- Wait, that's three things. I'm going to give you four reasons why we should surrender control that emerge from this passage. Four reasons to surrender control. First reason to surrender control to God is this. You aren't in control anyway. Right? I mean, this is what, in the movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, that's what this, this reveals, that Daisy got hit by this taxi cab. And, and if any one of these things had gone different, if the woman who'd hailed the cab, if she hadn't gotten that phone call and she'd, she'd already gotten in the cab, if, if the woman hadn't forgotten to wrap the present, and the reason she forgot to wrap the present is because her boyfriend had broken up with her the night before, and so she was emotionally distraught. So if the boyfriend hadn't broken up with her, then she would have wrapped the present and when, Daisy got, or when the lady got there, she would have gotten the present. She would have been five minutes past Daisy. I mean, on and on you go. There are so many things that were out of their control. Any one of them would have changed it. I mean, we all have our own curious case of Benjamin Button moments, right? We can all recount these sorts of things in our lives, negative, tragic perhaps, but also positive ones. I'll give you one of my own curious case of Benjamin Button moments, and that is, July 18th, 2009. 
That was the day that Laura Christine Wilkins became Laura Christine Hand. One of the greatest moments of my life. But there are so many things. If I re- look back, like Benjamin Button sitting in that room, kind of thinking through all that, there's so many things that could have diverted that so that we didn't intersect. Five years previously, I was up in Massachusetts, and a friend of mine invited me. He said, why don't we go into the city? You want to go into the city for the day, to Boston? And I almost didn't go. But I went. I went in, and we went in. We went into this bookstore in, in Cambridge. Um, that's where Harvard is. We didn't go to Harvard, but you just feel cool if you walk around there anyways. And so we went into Cambridge, and we just came across this bookstore and just started looking through books. And he happened to know that, that I, was, I was taking a church history class, and I had to write a paper on some historical figure. And he's going through, and he randomly came across this book on John Chrysostom who I didn't really even know who he was at the time. He was a a bishop in the 4th century. He said, hey, Kevin, maybe you should check this book out. I took the book. I read it. I loved the book. I got really interested in John Chrysostom. I wrote my paper on him. In fact, I got so interested in him that I decided to do another year of study after that. So after I graduated from seminary, I wanted to do another year of study, and I was, I was looking at two different schools. It came down to two schools. One was in England, one was in the United States, and I was trying to decide which one to do. But in that particular year, the exchange rate was terrible. And so I decided it was just too expensive for me to go to England, so I went to school in the United States. And because I went to school in the United States, I ended up graduating in May. If I had gone to England, I would have graduated in June. And the reason why that's significant is because in June, a friend of mine in Colorado, he called me up and said, hey, I'd love for you to come work at my church. Would you, would you be interested in coming and serving at my church? And if I had just graduated from the school in England, I'm sure I would have gone. But because I graduated in May from the school in, in the United States, I would already taken a position at another church in Maryland. I mean, this gets really fun. I, I, let me give, give you another angle. Did you guys know that in the beginning of the... Uh, 17th century, uh, England switched from being pro-Spanish to being pro-French in their policies. And because of this, King Charles uh, married Henrietta Maria, uh, Henrietta Marie, the, the daughter of the French queen. So King Charles married her, and she became Queen Mary. And then King Charles was really interested in colonizing, and so he actually helped to fund an exposition that colonized the Chesapeake Bay Area, and so then because he'd married Queen Mary, they ended up naming that area Maryland. And, and I think the reality is, is that I, I probably never would have gotten up the courage to propose to Laura if it hadn't been for the fact that I lived in Maryland. Okay, that was dumb. But anyway, you, you get the idea. We don't have control. There are so many things that we don't have control of. Why should we surrender control to God? Because you're not in control anyway. We see in this passage the control that Jesus has. Beginning here in verse... 30, he says to the disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. 
You know, it's, it's not like the disciples came back and said, Jesus, I'm so sorry, man. I was going to get the colt, and somebody called, and I went back, and I answered the phone call, and while I was doing that, somebody else took the colt. You see, it's, it's showing the control that God has. This is just, you know, this is just hinting at this, this idea that Jesus is in, you're not in control anyway. Why wouldn't we surrender control? First reason to surrender control to God is that you're not in control anyways. Second reason why we should surrender control to God is because oftentimes when we try to take control of things, we only make things worse. Isn't that true? Sometimes when we really try to take control of the situation, we actually make things worse. And that actually emerges interestingly in this passage as well. I'm going to have to explain this a little bit. In verse 41, Jesus says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about how Approximately 30 years after the life and ministry of Jesus, what happened in the year 66 AD is that the, the, the Israelites, they, they rebelled against the Romans. So the Roman Empire was in control at that point, and they rebelled against them. In other words, they tried to take control. They tried to take control in their own hands And Jesus, throughout his ministry, you see, throughout his ministry, what he had been trying to tell them is, you need to relinquish control. Jesus was, see, Jesus wasn't saying the kinds of things they were expecting the Messiah to say. Jesus was saying things like, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What he was encouraging them to do was to relinquish control control and what he's saying is that because you're not you're not listening you're going to try to take control of the situation and it's not going to go well and of course <clears throat> that's exactly what happened in those 4 years the romans came and completely crushed jerusalem destroyed the temple displaced the people who were living there jesus is saying you know oftentimes when we try to take control of things it only makes things worse I mean, isn't that true? I mean, if you are a, a boss, the kind of controlling boss who tries to control everything that uh, their employees do, trying to get them to do what they want to do, it, it backfires because then they quit. And then you're back to square one. Or if you're in a, a, a relationship with somebody, a controlling relationship. That never works. That, that the more you, you try to control them, eventually they, they just leave, and then you've got no control at all. Second reason why we should give up control is because trying to control things just makes things worse. Thirdly, out-of-controlness is often the path to blessing. Out-of-controlness or chaos is often the path to blessing. Isn't it true that we have a tendency to just, you know, we, we want to avoid chaos and out-of-controlness at all costs? All right, I mean, I think especially in our day and age, we are so safety conscious. 
we are so safe. We just want to control everything to try to make sure that nothing gets out of control. We want to control chaos and, and make sure that chaos can never happen. And what's interesting is you discover is that not even God does that. God, who's in control, at least as the Bible paints it, what's actually central to the very story that God is writing is one that, in, that includes chaos. That as we've seen, the story of the Bible can really unfold in just four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That second one, fall, that, that's out of controlness. That is God allowing out of controlness to take place. You know, I think for many of us, as sort of control freaks, you know, we look at the story of the Garden of Eden, and, and we're like, we, I would have done it differently, God. You know, I'm like, you know, like, why, you know, like, why did he even put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Why did he even give Eve an opportunity to, to grab? I mean, just, this is easy. Just get rid of the tree, God. Right? Isn't that how the control freak would think about the story of the Garden of Eden? But somehow in the mystery of God's providence, we see that out of controlness is often the path to blessing, that the fall of Adam leads to the call of Abraham, that the enslavement of Joseph leads to him helping his family get out of a famine, that the enslavement of the people of Israel leads to their deliverance out of Egypt. And then, of course, ultimately Jesus' death leads to resurrection. Is it possible for you today, maybe you are here today and you are in, you are in a place of out of controlness. Is it possible that that out of controlness is precisely the path that will lead to blessing? Is it possible that God wants to use that chaos to lead you into a place of peace. We should give up control, hand it over to God for three reasons, four. Well, the first three reasons are you're not in control anyways. Second reason is that controlling things only make things worse. Thirdly, out of controlness is often the path that leads to blessing. And then, Finally, we ought to give up control to God because in Jesus, we see that God gave up control of his life for you. Right now, here is where we get to the very, the very mystery of the Christian faith. Right? This is where it just blows your mind. You try to wrap your mind around this, good luck. The heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came here for us. And he showed that he loves us so much that he was actually willing to give up control of his life for us. Spend your whole life, you spend all of eternity trying to wrap your minds around that. Because I think that for many of us, this issue of surrendering control, some of it, if we hesitate, maybe you're here and, well, look, this is every one of us here. We all hesitate to surrender control to God. 
whether you're here today and you're not even sure if you believe in God or if you're here today and you say you believe in God, the reality is our hearts often still hesitate. Isn't that true? I mean, even if you believe, you believe all this stuff in the Bible about how God's in control in your mind, right? You could sign off on all that doctrine, but your heart, your heart has those moments, I'm not so sure about that. Heart, I'm not so sure that God really is in control. You think, I think for some of us, sometimes that's what we struggle with, but then other times what we struggle with isn't necessarily is God in control, but even more fundamentally, does God care? Does God actually care about me? Because I can think of all kinds of reasons why maybe he shouldn't. Part of the Christian faith is that no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, God himself has come and he gave up control of his life for you. That The greatest way you can show somebody that you care, isn't it true, is by a willingness to give up control of your life. Sacrifice, that's what we're talking about. Why should we give up control to God? Because in Jesus, God himself has given up control for you. Maybe you're here today and, and you feel like God is calling you to give up some area of your life, surrender control of your area to some life, and you hesitate. I would just say this, look to the cross. That's what we do every Sunday. If you're here and you feel like God's calling you to surrender your, more of your marriage to God, but you hesitate, I would say look to the cross. If you're here today and, and you sense God tugging at you to surrender some other area of your life, but you hesitate, I would say look to the cross. We now come to our time of communion. And communion is precisely an opportunity for us to look to the cross. It is an opportunity for us to surrender ourselves to the God who has given his life for us. I want to encourage you. Again, we're going to do it as we have been doing it throughout this series. You're all getting better at this, by the way. I know this is a little bit unusual for us. This isn't usually how we do it. But again, we'll have you come up the aisles in, uh, on the sides. Again, there's no pressure. If you don't feel comfortable coming forward, certainly uh, feel free to stay where you are. But you can just come up the side. Uh, ushers, go ahead and come forward, guys. That's right. Uh, go ahead and come forward. The ushers will, will be in either corner. And then uh, I will say a few things. I'll pray. And then you guys can come up, take communion, and then just come back down uh, the center aisle. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and uh, we praise you that you are a God who is in control. God, it's so easy for us to lose sight of that. And I pray that you, uh, you might be working in our hearts, Lord, pulling us towards you. I pray that we might find the freedom that comes from really surrendering to you. God, I pray uh, for those of us who perhaps for years have claimed faith in you, but our hearts still have not surrendered to you, that maybe today in this moment we might give ourselves more fully to you. Maybe for others, for the very first time, this might be a place where we say, God, I need you. I surrender to you. God, we ask that you would meet us by faith as we take these elements. We pray this in Jesus' name.